All right. Well, uh, this this is going to be a message on First Peter chapter two verses one through twelve, and I did a short devotional on this on Wednesday, but I said that I would record the full version later. So here I am doing that. But this is the third um, lesson in our series on First Peter, and I've titled it Two Groups. And this is essentially talking about what are the most important categories in the Bible. How does the Bible categorize people and how are those two categories supposed to relate to each other? And, you know, I'm going to get right into it. But if we think about ways that people are typically categorized, a lot of times we categorize people by their political affiliation. We might categorize them by their nationality. We might categorize them by you know their citizenship, where they're from. Are you an American? Are you a British person? Are you from Zimbabwe? We we might categorize people by their interests. You know, you you play a certain game or you're in a certain major. Or we categorize people by gender, by personality. There are all kinds of things that we use to put people in one group or another. And we have all of these different ways to categorize people, but when we look at the Bible, the way that the Bible categorizes people is different. And a lot of times you have people that they want to take something like race and make that the most important thing. Maybe they want to segregate people based on race in the 1800s, or they want to reduce people to their racial identity, which is what we kind of see more often today. But everyone wants to take these categories that people can fall into and essentially put them into boxes and then think of the world in that way. But when the Bible talks about groups, the two primary categories are Christians and non-Christians. And every single person can be put into one of these two groups. Every single person is either a Christian or a non-Christian. And the thing is, that's supposed to be... shaping the way that we think. We aren't supposed to be tribalizing and separating over other non-important issues, but instead we're supposed to be thinking about things in terms of Christians and non-Christians. We're supposed to be thinking about people in terms of where are they going? And that's supposed to motivate us to think about the world in specific terms and interact with the world in specific terms. And this is out of 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading. But the first thing that we need to know is the first group, Christians. Christians pursue God. And this is kind of the core aspect of what a Christian is and and who a Christian is. And Peter talks about this in verses 1 through 3. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And in that section, he's referring, he's saying, so put away, he's referring to the previous sections where we talked about God's work in salvation and our work in salvation. You know, what does God do in saving us and what do we do as a result? And so he's looking at this kind of just soteriology that he's laid out. And he's saying, as a response to that, you need to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's saying you need to reject the old pattern of your life, the sinful pattern of your life, and you need to pursue God. 
And he talks about, you know, the pure spiritual milk. And he's referring to the word there. He's referring to the Bible. And he's saying that we need to pursue it so that we can grow. And something that we should think about is he says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And something to think about is imagine if you eat something and it's just so delicious. Maybe you're eating ice cream or maybe it's your favorite food or maybe it's a hamburger from Chick-fil-A or I guess they don't have hamburgers, but I don't know, chicken sandwiches. Maybe you're eating a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A or whatever your favorite restaurant is. Once you take that first bite, if it's really, really good, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to take another bite. The majority of people that if they eat something and they enjoy it and they like it, they want more. But if you flip that on its head, if you eat something and it's disgusting, you didn't realize that it would, but maybe you bit into that hot dog and it was just moldy and gross on the inside. You know, it's bitter, it's nasty. Your immediate reaction is going to be to spit it out and to not eat any more. And so when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, one of the things that we need to recognize is that if you are a Christian, then your taste buds, your spiritual taste buds are going to like the flavor of God. It's going to like the flavor of the pure spiritual milk that is the Bible. And one of the ways that you can actually kind of look and see, okay, am I a Christian? Well... Do you want to read the Bible? Is that something that you care about? Is that something that you're invested in? Do you enjoy it? And it's not necessarily to say that every single time you read the Bible, that it's like this, you know, absolutely hilltop experience. You know, we don't treat food that way. We don't only eat cake, but we want it. And we eat foods that we enjoy and we want to eat those foods. And if you are a Christian, it doesn't necessarily mean that every time you're reading the Bible, it's just the most enjoyable thing you've ever done. But it does mean that that's something that you're going to pursue. That's something that you're going to care about. And it is something that you, on your own, are genuinely going to want. You know, one of the things you should ask yourself, if you have no desire for the Bible, if you're just not interested, then there are some questions you need to ask yourself. It's okay, why don't I have a taste for this? But beyond that... You know, the milk is how you grow. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And something that you need to recognize is that if you aren't reading the Bible, you are not growing as a Christian. You know, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you're a Christian, the Bible is like food for you. But also, it's the primary mode of spiritual growth. It's the primary means of spiritual growth. And we did a series, you know, I think it was our last series actually, was on spiritual disciplines. And the main two spiritual disciplines are reading the Bible and praying. And, you know, consider this. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 as we continue talking about this. But 4 to 6, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So again, this is just talking about a Christian's orientation towards God, that we are just oriented towards God in the sense that we care about him, that he is precious to us, and that we believe in him and will not be put to shame. But also we have work to do in our lives. He's saying you're being built up like a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Like as Christians, we have work that we ought to do. But to what I was talking about just a second ago, when I was talking about growing, he says that we are being built up as a spiritual house. That in order to be a holy priesthood, in order to offer spiritual sacrifices, if we as Christians want to accomplish the work that God has for us in this life, then we need to grow. And the important thing is that the means of that growth starts with the Bible. And so I said, if you are not reading the Bible, you are not growing. And an example of this is if you imagine someone who's working out, someone who goes to the gym and for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, they're just pumping iron and they're going at it. What would happen to that person if after they did this intense workout, they just didn't eat? Like not even just for that day, but just on a regular basis, they were working out, pumping iron, and they never ate, they never hydrated, they never took their protein. Instead of growing, that person would actually break down. They would injure themselves. They would get weaker. Their body would break apart. They'd be losing weight. They would not be getting stronger. And the issue is that that's like the Christian life. The Bible is not the only thing that grows you. But if you don't have the Bible, if you're not learning, then the other things that would typically grow you actually break you down. And an example of that would be working out. Working out, it's typically going to make you stronger. That's how you get stronger. That's how you develop and grow. But if you do that and you don't eat, if you do that and you don't give your body what is necessary to build itself back up, you actually just hurt yourself. And an example of that is the Bible. We talked you know, uh, two weeks ago about the way that trials build you up. But the thing is, things like trials, things like prayer, you don't know how to pray if you don't read the Bible. You don't know how to go through trials if you don't read the Bible. If you don't know how to think about these trials and function in them, which is what you get from the Bible, then the thing that you run into is that instead of building you up, you don't know how to approach them and they actually make you weaker. And so you need to understand that if you are not reading the Bible, if you are not learning the Bible, then other ways that you might grow are useless to you. And they actually make you weaker. And so it's important to recognize that if you are a Christian, then you are oriented towards God. You have a taste for the Bible and it is necessary for your growth. You know, we don't often go a day without eating. We don't often go three days without eating. We don't often go two weeks without eating. But how often do we go so much longer than that without reading our Bibles? And it's important to recognize that that's not just important and valuable, but that it's actually crucial. So that's the first thing is that Christians pursue God. And the primary way of doing that is through studying. And of course, you can go back to our spiritual discipline series to hear a bit more about the other ways that we do that. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. 
But the second thing that we see is that non-Christians reject God. So this is the second category of people. The first category of people are Christians. The second category of people are non-Christians. And Christians are... Ca- are um, identified by their pursuit of God, but non-Christians are identified by their rejection of God. You know, those are the people who accept Jesus and the people that reject Jesus. So in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Peter says, So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so you see that in the same way that Christians are oriented towards God, seeing him as precious and valuable, non-Christians reject the cornerstone. To them, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and offensive. He trips them up and he makes them upset. And that's just the internal orientation of a non-Christian. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, it says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you see it says those who are called. And that goes back to 1 Peter chapter 1 where we were talking about God's work in salvation. That God knows from the foundation of the world, before the world even existed, God already knew who he would save. And God reaches into the lives of people that would never have chosen him on their own. Elsewhere in Romans, we talked about this a few, week, uh, a few weeks ago, I think a couple months ago, that if you are not a Christian, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That from Adam to, you know, from Adam, death reigned and hit all men. And the issue is that in our fallen state, as sinners, as non-Christians, we have no taste for God. You know, in the same way that a Christian has a taste for God, a non-Christian markedly doesn't. In the same way that for us, when we taste the word, we want more of it, the same way that you want more of a food that you taste that's delicious, when a non-Christian tastes the things of God, he just spits it out. It's not that he's not smart enough to understand it. It's not that it doesn't make sense to him. And it's not that he doesn't have the information necessary to know that God is real and to realize his need for salvation. It's not that that's not there. It's that it's disgusting to a non-Christian. That it's not that a non-Christian isn't interested in those things. And the thing that you should notice is that it says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And these are the things that they say that they want, but in reality, even if they had those things, it wouldn't matter. And part of how I can say that is that they do have those things. In the book of John, chapter 11, there's a story where Jesus raises a man from the dead. He raises Lazarus. He goes into Jerusalem, and Lazarus has been dead for three days. Jesus goes over to the tomb. He has them open it, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out alive after having been dead for three days. And in this situation, Jesus performs a miracle. Throughout the book, the Gospels, the Jews are saying, show us a sign. And Jesus is performing sign after sign. He's healing people, raising people from the dead, like this case. And like raising someone from the dead is like the ultimate sign. And later in verse uh, 45 through 48, and also verse 53, you see the reactions that people have after seeing Jesus raise someone from the dead. 
And it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So there are people that they see Jesus raise someone from the dead, and their response is to believe. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there's another group of people that when they see what Jesus does, they go and they like tattle on Jesus to the Pharisees. And let's see what the Pharisees do. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the Pharisees see that Jesus raises someone from the dead, and they don't deny that it happened. They say, obviously this is happening. Obviously Jesus is raising people from the dead. Obviously, like, a noteworthy sign has taken place. Let's kill him. And the thing is, the sign wasn't different. Both groups of people saw Jesus raise someone from the dead. One group of people believed in him. The other group of people rejected him. The difference was not the sign. The difference was the heart of the people who saw it. Christians pursue God. Christians have a a taste for God, but non-Christians reject God. You know, people who say that they want signs, even if they had the signs, they would reject it. And people who say they want wisdom, you know, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, I, sw- I, I, I quote this verse so often. I think about it a lot. But it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And it talks later on in that chapter, it continues and just says that God reveals himself through creation. That when people reject what God says, it's not because the information is not available to them. It's not because God's not actually wise. It's because they reject him. They suppress the truth and they don't care. Like in 1 Corinthians, the verse said that to us, Christ is the wisdom of God. And the thing is, God's a whole lot smarter than non-Christians. God's a whole lot smarter than Christians. God is a whole lot smarter than anything because he's God. And in Job, it says that um, he catches the wise in their craftiness. You know, even the wisest that the world has to offer, the smartest person who has ever lived, is absolutely nothing compared to God. The Bible has existed for a very long time. It's existed, completed for 2,000 years. And during that time, despite all the scrutiny that it faces, the Bible still shows time and time again that it teaches history accurately, that it teaches the world accurately, and that it recognizes what people are. And if you live your life by the Bible, Psalms says that by studying the Bible, a person is wiser than his teachers. That's Psalm 119. And so you see that non-Christians reject God and there is no middle ground. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And there are people who think that they can just kind of stand in the middle, that they can not quite accept, not quite reject. You know, I'm just making my decision. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't hate Jesus. I don't hate God, but like, I don't know if I want to, you know, accept him. I don't know if I want him to actually be in control of my life. I don't know if I actually want to repent and submit. And those people are not on actually in a middle ground. In reality, they're hostile to God, just like the atheist who rails against God and hates him. 
and does it vocally. And the issue is, those are the only two categories. There are people who are on God's side, and there are people who are against God. There is no middle ground. And there are people who think that they're on the middle ground, but in reality, they're not. And so we have these two groups. You have people who have a taste for God, who want God, and you have people who reject God, who hate God. So how are we, as Christians, supposed to relate to non-Christians? And like I said, I think on Wednesday, this is such an important section of the book because this is where Peter sets the tone for the entire rest of the book. He starts by talking about what Christianity is and what it means to be saved. And now he's talking about the two groups that categorize the entire world. And he's about to talk about how Christians relate to non-Christians. And the entire rest of the book is about being Christians and living as witnesses to the world. How do you live out your testimony? And so in verses 9 and 10, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we see that Peter is explaining this is how you relate to people that are not Christians. A lot of times when you see people divided into groups, you know, tribalistic tendencies tend to result in violence. Historically, you see that the Catholic Church and also Islam were extraordinarily violent. That when they interacted with, you know, religions that were not them, they conquered them and they killed them. That that was how they dealt with it. And that is not at all the way that God is commanding Christians to act. That is not at all acceptable. And where violence between groups is extraordinarily common, that is not at all how Christians are supposed to go about our relationships with non-Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul is discussing himself and other like apostles, and he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this applies to us as well, that we are Christ's ambassadors in the world, that we carry Christ's name, and that God is making his appeal through us. When, when Paul is going through you know, his role as an ambassador, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is our mission as God's representatives in the world? Our mission is the evangelism and the salvation of non-Christians. We don't hate non-Christians. We don't solve our differences by trying to get rid of them. We're not trying to beat them in arguments. We're not trying to make them look dumb. We don't look down on non-Christians. No. We are seeking their salvation. We are God's spokespeople and we are supposed to love non-Christians and call them to Christ. And, you know, something I say is that Christians do not have human enemies. You know, Ephesians talks about the way that we war against the principalities and, you know, the prince of power of the air. We war against Satan and demons as they seek to deceive, you know, non-Christians and also to tempt Christians. You know, we, our enemies are spiritual. Our enemies are not people. We love people. Christians love non-Christians. 
And that is what categorizes our relationships. That's what the relationship between those two groups is. We are seeking their salvation. You know, I, um, I'm on a website called All Poetry, you know, a bit nerdy, but whatever. And one of the things that you do on that website is you interact with other people who write poetry and you'll have contests and you'll submit stuff to contests. And there was this one guy who he was just, he called himself a Christian poet and he was just railing against what he categorized as non-Christians. And he was just reveling in, you know, that God's judgment and he was talking about how God hates non-Christians and he, you know, categorized all these people, categorized by all specific kinds of sins. And he was talking about how God hates those people. And he was just railing about God's judgment and wrath. And he was reveling in the hatred of non-Christians. And it was so sad to see that there are people who take God's name, who call themselves Christians, and then they do things that God hates. They act in a way that God hates. And God never calls us to hate people that are not Christians. God calls us to love people that are not Christians. And there was a time where this guy that, I was, that was on this website, that he started a contest and he was like, hey guys, write, write poems about how much God hates evil, wretched sinners and how much you know they're going to suffer. And I'm just looking at this and I'm like, goodness gracious. So me and about 12 other Christian poets, we understood the assignment and we didn't even talk to each other. I didn't interact with them at all. Um, but we went and we wrote a bunch of poems about how much God loves people and how much God wants to extend his grace to, you know, to non-Christians and that Christians are supposed to love non-Christians like me and a dozen other poets. So this guy, he did not at all get the kinds of poems that he was anticipating. But I thought it would be pertinent to read what I wrote because it kind of captures the, the way that we're supposed to view these relationships. But it's called Chainbreaker, and it says, I once was bound by blackest chains, clamped to my wrists, my throat, my legs, with spikes that pierced my heart and soul, tainting all thought, causing all woe. Those cuffs were not placed by another's hand, but tightened by lust and polished by sin. I was prisoner of my own designs and destined to burn for my skyward crimes. But a scapegoat came, took my rightful place. He bore my furnace and lifted my face. Free from my weight to see his eyes, who should I meet but Jesus Christ? I now am graced by brightest love from him named Savior and no longer judge. As mercy now caresses me, how can I not but cry and plea that God's love be shown to my brethren bound by dark, heavy chains like those that held me? And essentially, this is, you know, I, I wrote this and it's just talking about the fact that salvation, you know, 1 Peter 1 talks about how we don't have the ability to save ourselves, but rather God, he is the one who saves us, who foreknew us, who predestined us, and who guards our salvation. And that's echoed in Romans and Ephesians, and a lot of other places too. But we don't have the ability to save ourselves. God saves us. Jesus takes on our suffering and pain, and he saves us. And we go from the non-Christian category into the Christian category. Because none of us started as, as Christians. We, didn't, we weren't born loving God. We were born hating God. And God is the one who saved us and changed us. And he is the one who gives us the ability to pursue him. And so when we look around at non-Christians, we see people who are just like us. 
We see people who hate God and who are enemies of God and who need God to save them, just like we needed God to save us. And so we don't hate them, we love them. And our lives are supposed to be lived for the salvation of non-Christians. And a big part of that is in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And the thing that we see is that in the very beginning of this section, Peter says, you know, be righteous because you are Christians. God has changed you and given you a different goal in life. Pursue God, pursue righteousness because God has saved you. But then at the end, he says, pursue God, pursue righteousness, reject sin so that you may pursue the salvation of others. Your mission is to save other people and to pursue their salvation. And a massive part of how you do that is the way that you act on your own. You know, your own personal righteousness, once people see that your life was changed, that you started as this wicked, evil sinner who had no desire for and no taste for God, and God changed you into someone who loves him, who pursues him, and someone who is righteous, that speaks volumes to the watching world. And I was talking to Carlos, which is my sister's boyfriend, and we were talking about this, and Carlos grew up in a Catholic family, in a Catholic church. He grew up Catholic. And he talked about how he left the Catholic Church because he looked around at all of these people who claimed to know Jesus and didn't act any differently. People who were not actually changed by their religion, but rather they acted like everyone else. And so he left the Catholic Church and when he got older and when he eventually came into a Christian church, he saw a bunch of people, he said, that not only did they claim to know Jesus, but their lives indicated that they actually did know Jesus. He saw a bunch of people who actually were different. And the thing that they say, they say that actions speak louder than words. And a lot of times you have people who they say one thing and then their actions call them a liar. And the issue is that when you are a Christian, we talked about this last week where I talked about the story of Hezekiah, you represent God to the world. What, what by your actions are you telling the world about God? Are you telling the world that God is loving are you telling the world that God is merciful? Are you telling the world the truth of God? Are you representing him accurately? But also by your actions, are you showing that God's salvation is real? That by changed character in your own life, that you're demonstrating that God really can save people? Because for Carlos, when he saw people that lived like Christians, that was attractive to him and God was used that to save him. And the issue is that in your life, the way that you live is a massive part of how you evangelize other people. Because the world is divided into Christians and non-Christians. There are people who love God and there are people who hate God. And as the people who love God, our mission on this earth, we aren't just beamed up into heaven, but God leaves us here so that we can evangelize people. Because none of us is able to escape hell on our own. We need Jesus. We need the sacrifice of Christ to bring us into God's family. And our mission as Christians is to spread that to non-Christians and to witness to them. 
And the entire rest of 1 Peter is about how do you live in the world in such a way that your gospel witness is validated and strengthened. How do you live like a Christian? How do you live a testimony? And that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this series. How do you live like a Christian in all of these specific ways? So with that, I'm going to, I'm going to close it out. This went longer than it should have. But, you know, it's a recording. Say lovey. But I hope that whoever listens to this, that this is beneficial. But, you know, I'm going to bow my head and pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for technology. And thank you that you give me a method <laughs> to spread your word to people who otherwise might not have heard it. Lord, I pray that if anyone's listening to this, that this would be beneficial to them. But I also pray that, Lord, you would help me and help my students and help my church and help my community and just help Christians in general. Help us to live out our testimony. Help us to live in a way that demonstrates who you are and demonstrates the true potency of the gospel. Help us to recognize the world and to see it in the way that you see it. We don't, we don't view the world as divided along racial lines. We don't view the world as divided on, divided on class lines. We don't view the world in man-made, pointless categories. We view the world the way that you view it. People. People who are either saved or who are not saved. We view non-Christians not as enemies, but as people that we love. People that we care about. People that need you. People that need Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to recognize our mission in life. And I pray that you would help us to pursue it and to really see the value of the mission that you've given us and to understand that the way that we personally live, our personal faithfulness is a massive portion of how we witness to the world. Not just with our words, although certainly with our words, but with our actions. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. I pray that you would help us to be effective. And I pray that you would help us to be righteous. And I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.